Hello, welcome to another episode of this weekly podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. I write for FireDogLake.com. I'm joined by my co-host, Rania Kalek. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And this week, our interview guest is Cade uh, Crockford, and she is a director for the Technology for Liberty Project of ACLU of Massachusetts. Welcome. Thanks for having me, you guys. The first question I have for you is sort of to pick apart this message that has been promoted by a lot of people covering surveillance currently as we have all of these national security agency documents coming out from Snowden. And a lot of people are saying, well, look, this isn't that bad. The NSA doesn't target activists. It's not like the days of COINTELPRO. And then that's your um, opportunity to, to, I want you to take a sledgehammer to that argument. Well, it's a little difficult to prove a negative, right? So when people say the NSA is not doing X, uh, in particular because the NSA is an extremely secretive organization, it's very difficult to marshal evidence to support those claims in the first instance. So I would suggest to, to people who make that claim that um, everything in the NSA's history, as well as the CIA's history and the FBI's history, and not even just you know, ancient history, but relatively recent events um, over the past 10 years suggest that these agencies basically do whatever they want up to and even beyond the limits of the extremely permissible laws that govern these agencies with respect to all sorts of things, not just spying on dissidents, but even killing people, torturing them, etc. So I guess I just have a hard time... Um, enduring these kinds of ridiculous platitudes, evidenceless platitudes from uh, people who clearly have, you know, an axe to grind with respect to their apologias for the surveillance state, when the organizations that they're claiming do not spy on dissidents are engaged in things like crowd killings, right? I mean, the NSA and the CIA... Um, the NSA through its signals intelligence and the CIA through its drone program operate programs where they kill people based on um, the geographic area that they live in and sort of, you know, what they can make out about someone's physical appearance from hundreds of feet away in, you know, from a robotic killer machine, these drones. So the notion that agencies that kill people in these crowd-killing operations, also called signature strikes, um, and have run, you know, torture dens all over these, in these black sites all over the world. The suggestion that spying on dissidents is somehow beyond the pale is just really confusing to me. Um, it, it flies in the face of, frankly, common sense. And then we have to look very carefully at what we already know about uh, the FBI's behavior, for example, for a long time in this country. And, and, you know, COINTELPRO certainly never ended. It definitely changed. I think that the FBI was chastened and a little bit scared about what happened in the 1970s after an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, was robbed by anti-war activists and a number of files disclosing programs that were aimed not just to monitor dissident groups in the United States, but actually to destroy them. 
uh, were leaked to the press and published in the Washington Post and other newspapers, the, the FBI freaked out. And suddenly, you know, activities that had been shrouded behind an iron wall of secrecy that J. Edgar Hoover maintained, um, not just through... Uh, not just by keeping them secret from people, but, you know, politicians who knew about these programs were actually blackmailed into keeping them secret. Um, in fact, I'm reading the burglary, the burglary Betty uh, Metzger's book right now about that, the FBI burglary, and there's a, there's a part of the book where she talks about how after the burglary, uh, a congressman called for investigations into the FBI. And this was the first time that any congressman had ever um, called into account J. Edgar Hoover's handling of the FBI in public. Uh, Hoover was livid and flipped out. And what he did is truly shocking and I think should, you know, serve as a caution to anyone who would suggest that these uh, warrantless surveillance programs today can be maintained with any sort of um, decency or accountability. Hoover, in order to keep the FBI out of congressional investigations, went to the White House and said, listen, remember how we were bugging journalists and the president's speechwriter and all these other people in connection with some other thing? And, you know, the attorney general in the White House signed off on this illegal surveillance. Well, if you allow this congressman to investigate the FBI, I'm going to tell everybody that you guys let me do that. So, I mean, you know, it's you don't have to have someone like J. Edgar Hoover in charge in order for extremely secretive government surveillance programs that really have almost limited funds to get completely out of control. And there's a, I, something that I just wrote about on my blog today, actually— um, is another part of Metzger's book, which I really recommend. It's fabulous. It's a great history. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I think is extremely relevant to the conversations that we're having today. Um, one of the ways in which law enforcement and these intelligence agencies have been able to justify their surveillance and infiltration and disruption of activist movements is by calling them terrorists. Um, and this is not new. This has been going on since 9-11. Clearly, uh, we published a report here in Boston a couple years ago showing that the Boston Police Department was doing this at its fusion center. Uh, there was a story just a couple months ago about activists in the Midwest being charged with um, so-called terrorism hoax for literally spilling glitter in uh, a dirty energy corporation's um, offices accidentally. Um, and, you know, that's not even to mention all of the environmental activists and animal rights activists who the FBI has hounded um, over the years as so-called eco-terrorists or animal rights terrorists. Um, and, you know, some of those people have done things like light fires or whatever, but a, a lot of this is purely nonviolent um, dissident. So, you know, the, the origins of this kind of stuff actually come from Richard Helms, the former director of the CIA, he, in the 1970s, right after the FBI office was raided and some of the stuff about COINTELPRO started coming out in the press, um, a number of CIA officers who had a position that was relatively powerful, they were in a position of management where they could actually make recommendations to the director of the CIA about how to change internal operations. They wrote a memo to Richard Helms in 1972 saying look, we think that the CIA's domestic surveillance operations directed at dissidents are illegal, and we think that they should stop. 
um, and we're afraid that they're going to be leaked, that somebody, that the public is going to find out about this, and it'll do serious damage to the CIA's credibility, and it'll mean that our international operations will be, um, you know, they, they might be subject to investigation as well, or, you know, somebody might meddle into our external affairs. And so we should really cut out this domestic spying, which was illegal at the time, flatly, because the CIA's charter said that it wasn't allowed to do anything in the United States. So anyway, Helms's response to this was essentially to say, no, we're definitely not going to stop spying on dissidents. By the way, you know, some of that spying included a, a massive CIA operation that was directed specifically at destroying alternative news organizations in the United States. Um, they were spying on and disrupting over 500 alternative newspapers at one time. Um, and they succeeded in a lot of those. I think the operation was called Operation Mockingbird. But anyway, um, Helms's response to this internal dissent at the CIA saying we should cut this out was to say, no, actually what we're going to do instead is to start labeling political dissidents as international terrorists. They literally did that. And so instead of, um, you know, this group before Helms changed the name had been called MH Chaos. This was the code name for the domestic surveillance programs. He changed the name of the group to International Terrorism Group. And I think it's really obvious that this legacy remains with us today. I mean, you look at the way that the NYPD treats dissent in New York City on the streets. This is not secret. Um, the NYPD is terrified of dissent. You know, pepper spraying, people who are standing on a public sidewalk, um, conducting mass arrests, uh, spying on, you know, dissidents who are involved in Occupy and Stop and Frisk movement. It's It certainly has not gone away. And in fact, I think in a lot of ways it's gotten worse, in part because the nine in the post 9/11 situation we're living in a world in which DHS the Department of Justice and other arms of the federal government are funding state and local law enforcement to the tune of billions of dollars um, to purchase all sorts of military grade surveillance equipment so you know the the sort of 1960s red squads are basically a joke compared to what the police that's actually that's actually exactly what i wanted to ask you about kate was because that's something that you talk about or you write about a lot that other people who cover the surveillance state don't really discuss is um the connection with local law enforcement and the impact it has on local law enforcement and the way that they police could you talk a little bit about that sure so since the creation of the department of homeland security um I guess 12 or 13 years ago now, the DHS has been giving these grants through FEMA, actually, to every local or every level of state and local law enforcement to purchase, like I said, all sorts of military-grade surveillance gear, as well as to develop these things called fusion centers, which are basically spy centers that are run by state and local government at which members of uh, private companies... So potentially, you know, dirty energy companies, definitely transit companies, um, potentially in some places, companies like FedEx and uh, DHL have representatives at these fusion centers. Also, the National Guard, the FBI, uh, members of the Department of Homeland Security's Intelligence and Anal Analysis Office, all of these people are staffed sitting next to state and local cops um, all over the country. There are 72 of these fusion centers that DHS paid for. And 
So it's not just the high-tech surveillance equipment that's being deployed on the streets to spy on protesters, like, for example, at Occupy Wall Street, um, a security researcher said that it was commonplace for the NYPD to walk around the protests at Zuccotti Park with um, what are called cell phone sniffers, which can fit in a backpack, actually. They're quite small. And basically what that technology does is it um, intercepts signals from that, that cell phones are sending, thinking that the cell phones are sending them to cell phone towers. This little device actually intercepts that signal and so has the capability not only to identify everybody who's in a given geographic area based on the information their cell phone is sending, but also potentially intercept communications from those devices. Um, and we have good reason to believe that the FBI deploys this technology without warrant throughout the United States. The FBI, I mean, the, the NYPD does as well, we heard in New York City, and directly targeting dissidents um, with that sort of high-tech military-grade surveillance technology. But so there's that stuff that's on the street. And, of course, ex huge expenditures to blanket our urban areas with high-tech surveillance cameras, many of which are networked into regional or citywide systems that even um, federal agencies have direct access to view. Um, so there's a lot of that physical surveillance, but there's also been this construction in the background of a network of intelligence sharing capabilities. So we have now, you know, keystone cops who have not been trained in the proper methods of intelligence collection or, you know, protecting privacy and civil liberties, oftentimes um, working in, in a field that for a long time had been dominated by the FBI, which is, you know, counterterrorism, so-called, you know, intelligence collection, and they're sharing this information widely, um, you know, across state and local police departments through these fusion centers and then also up um, into the federal government through the DHS and the FBI. And what we've seen through some of these programs, particularly something called suspicious activity reporting, which a lot of people will know um, by its creepy Stasi slogan, see something, say something, um, these, this program in particular has been proven you know, across the country in numerous different situations to essentially be a racial profiling alert system. So, you know, people, for example, on the train in Washington, D.C., who see an Arab man or someone who appears to look Arab checking his watch um, is reported to the police. And this report is then sent up the chain to the FBI, and the FBI has to investigate all of these and chase down the leads. And in the vast majority of cases, it's absolutely nothing. And as far as we know, these fusion centers have thus far provided absolutely zero value um, in terms of federal anti-terrorism efforts. On the other hand, they are extremely adept at spying on dissidents. So we had, you know, for just one of many, many examples, uh, a case in Pennsylvania where it was discovered that the Pennsylvania Fusion Center was actually working with a fracking company to spy on anti-fracking dissidents. Um, this was a direct collaboration between a corporation that would potentially suffer as a result of um, anti-fracking organizing with a so-called anti-terrorism or counti-terrorism fusion center that was in fact, you know, using its resources to basically undermine p peaceful political protests um, in Pennsylvania. So this is just one example. And as a result of that, actually, the actor, uh, what's his name, uh, Mark Ruffalo, was put on an on an anti-terrorist uh, no-fly list. 
because he's he was involved with this anti-fracking work. So, you know, across the board, it's not it's you know, the notion that the CIA and the FBI are not doing this or the NSA is really funny to me, given that we know for a fact local cops are doing it. So, I mean, if local police, <laughs> you know, have the resources and the capability and the, and the freedom, frankly, to spy on dissidents without any sort of criminal predicate, then it's really just laughable to assume that agencies like the FBI and the CIA, which have long, long you know, disgustingly dirty histories of doing this to activists in the United States would refrain from doing so. Uh, but, but then you also have the private companies that are sending out or, or have their own set of spies that are engaged in work. I know you did a post about the Bank of America having some social media spies. Could you briefly discuss that? Sure, yeah. This was a somebody, I forget who, but some, I think, private citizen did a public records request um, in Washington State to learn a little bit more about how Occupy members were, were being uh, monitored by the Washington State Patrol. And in some of the emails that this person received in response to their public records request were emails from a vice president for security or something like that from Bank of America. And in these emails, this person who identified herself as a former Washington State Patrol officer um, said things like, you know, you can rely on us. The Washington State Patrol is not very good at keeping tabs on these online dissidents. And this is paraphrasing, but she said, you know, you can rely on us because we have 20 full-time social media people, and this is all they do all day. So, you know, we'll collect the intel for you. We'll, we'll monitor these anti-banking activists, these, you know, economic justice activists online, and we'll feed you all the information you need about you know, so-called anarchists and people involved in May Day protests and the Occupy movement as a whole. That's, Kate, you're like a you're like an encyclopedia on this stuff. It's like incredible. I'm like my mind is like blown away right now. <laughs> I'm just like, holy crap! You know so much. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> uplifting at parties. You should invite me to some. No, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. Like you're. It's like there's. I mean, a lot of this stuff I haven't. Uh, I haven't heard anybody else connect the way you just did. So it's like, I don't know why, you know, why well, do know why, but I, it, it's a shame that you're not like, um, you know, on network television. <laughs> they don't invite me more. And I don't know why they don't though. I don't get it. Well, sir, Kate, one of the last questions I have is since I've been here in Chicago covering this trial of these three, men uh, that are known as the NATO three right now. Uh, I've come to learn a lot about what the Chicago Police Department was doing prior to this meeting. And I was hoping to get your comments on some of what you might have been seeing coming out. I know you did a post just uh, reacting to some of the stuff coming out of the trial. And maybe just specifically talk about the advantages or, or how these agencies take advantage of these like special security events to expand their surveillance operations. Yeah, that's a really critical point that I think a lot of people miss and that goes undiscussed, definitely in the national and regime press. This is a major problem. Every time there's a what is called national security special event, there's actually a term for this in federal law. Um, this is another uh, result of the post-9-11 hysteria over terrorism and you know, the translation of that hysteria into just, you know, almost limitless funds and power for any agency that slaps counterterrorism onto its mission. Um, 
the national security special event designation does a lot of things. It, first of all, immediately strips protesters of a bunch of their rights. So it uh, amps up penalties for arrest within certain, you know, no-go red zones near uh, the epicenter of these events, like uh, the DNC, the RNC, uh, special presidential events, um, you know, and things like, you know, the Olympics or major sporting events like the Super Bowl or something like this. Um, anytime any event gets this designation of national security special event, it means dissidents will be faced with extra penalties if they're arrested in certain zones. In fact, um, arrest within the, the red zone, I believe, is a 10-year uh, federal prison sentence. It's a felony. Um, and not only that, in the, in the run-up to these events, because, of course, they take a long time to plan, and a huge part of the planning is the so-called security for them, um, in the years running up to the events, what always happens is that state and local government in the cities in which these events take place are showered with millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars for the pur purchase of extremely advanced network surveillance systems. So we saw this happen in Tampa with the RNC. Um, we saw it happen w with the DNC last in the last election. Uh, we are certainly going to see it happen if the Olympics come to a United States city in the next few years, which is actually one of the major reasons I, as a Boston resident, oppose the Olympics coming to the city of Boston. Um, Boston is making a, a bid for the, for the next Olympics, and I think it would be an absolute disaster for the city because once these surveillance systems um, and, of course, crowd control equipment and militarized gear for the police departments and the SWAT teams in the areas, once this stuff is um, given to the local police departments and to the fusion centers, it doesn't go away. There's no, you know, they're not renting this equipment just just for the, um, the special events themselves. All of that stuff sticks around. And so, like we saw with the NATO 3, um, what comes with all of this uh, security equipment, surveillance equipment, and, you know, newfound integration and relationships among uh, local governments and, and the FBI and DHS and even the U.S. military. What comes along with that is, um, I, I believe, and this is, I think, more of a, an argument than something I can prove, but it seems to me that what comes along with all of that physical equipment and those relationships and the money um, is a hysteria about you know, turning dissidents into terrorists. Um, because, frankly, thankfully, thankfully there haven't been really any major terrorist attacks in the United States. I mean, we had the bombing at the Boston Marathon, which was obviously awful, but nothing at the scale of 9-11 or anything like that that I think would really justify these massive expenditures um, and, and the you know hits to, to the rights of protesters that we've seen. And so in the absence of real terrorist threats, which, you know, as far as I know, there weren't any actual terrorist threats to the NATO gathering in Chicago a few years ago, uh, police departments are doing whatever they can to manufacture them. So then we have the Chicago Police Department actually, you know, acting in queue from the FBI's moves over the past 10 years, doing what appears to be uh, troubling behavior that borders on entrapment with these young uh, men who are now being charged with state under a state, a state terrorism statute. Um, so it's not only the, the new technologies, it's not only the new relationships, it's, it's also this like sort of sick 
cancerous, um, you know, mode of operating and thinking, I think, that law enforcement inculcates that, that um, assumes that anything that uh, challenges these national security special events should be looked at as a potential terrorist threat. And that's frankly, you know, anti-democratic. It's very totalitarian, actually, in essence. The idea that anyone challenging someone powerful, no matter how peaceful, um, is a potential terrorist or a threat to the state, that's really alarming. Um, and I think more and more we're seeing the government act as if any resistance, any dissidence at all, is um, akin to terrorism. Thanks, Cade. Um, we're glad you were able to join us and, and talk uh, for this week's show. So thank you for coming. Well, thanks for having me, guys. All right. Hello, and welcome to the discussion portion. I'm Kevin Gastola, uh, second-tier accomplice of <laughs> Edward Snowden. <laughs> and I'm Rania Kalik. Can there, hey, can there be, like, a, a, a third-tier accomplice? Like, because I'm not really a Snowden accomplice, but I'm friends with you, and we're doing this together, so... Or maybe there's something else that you do that makes you uh, a person to be put on some kind of a watch list. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've, uh, I hope so. So for this uh, discussion segment, we're going to uh, talk about the Soda Stream story with Scarlett Johansson. And we're going to get into, there's a couple very perverted and wicked stories about cavity searches and police. We're going to highlight those. And then we'll wrap and end the show with some discussion and highlights from the NATO 3 trial, uh, these three young men in Chicago. And currently I've been spending quite a bit of time at this soulless place called the Cook County Criminal Courthouse <laughs> in Chicago. And we'll discuss that. But we'll, let's first begin. Uh, with the Soda Stream story, uh, Rodney, do you want to give a quick rundown? Yeah. So, Soda Stream, um, in case you're not familiar with the product, is this really, in my opinion, stupid um, fad product. Uh, it's basically you can make your own sodas at home. Uh, it's supposed to save, you know, supposed to save the environment because no cans or bottles. Um, but, you know, you could just not drink soda to begin with. But whatever. That's besides the point. So there's this product called SodaStream. Um, and the problem with it is that it is the, – the, the company is based in Israel. Well, it's based out of Israel, uh, and it has a factory. Its biggest factory, its main factory, is in the um, – it's in, in an illegal Israeli settlement called uh, – I never know if I'm pronouncing it right, but I, I – Mal – Adumim, I think it's pronounced. Um, so it's this massive, illegal, Israeli, Jewish-only settlement on Palestinian land in the West Bank. Um, and it's basically, like, in a really contentious area, too, because it's, uh, it, like, splits the West Bank. Uh, it basically, like, separates the West Bank from East Jerusalem. So, like, if you were still hypothetically in favor of a two-state solution— like the it, this settlement basically makes that impossible, um, but so, but so basically the you know the boycott, divest, and sanction movement uh, BDS has 
been targeting SodaStream is one of the companies that's been targeting because it makes its products inside an illegal Israeli settlement and actually on its label has lied about where its product is made. Like it'll say made in Israel when in fact it's made in occupied Palestine. But um, so there's a lot of reasons to to be boycotting this this company. You know, if you're uh, if you're in favor of human rights and against occupation and settler colonialism, and so it really it, it upset a lot of people when um, uh, last week or a little over a week ago, I think it was Scarlett Johansson, the famed actress, uh, signed on to be SodaStream's global first ever global brand ambassador, uh, and she was going to appear in a Super Bowl commercial for SodaStream. Uh, and the problem with that is that Scarlett Johansson at the time uh, was also the global ambassador for Oxfam International, which basically means that, you know, she helps them bring in, like she helps fundraise for them by like doing photo ops in uh, poor countries uh, in Africa. And so this, uh, so her position at Oxfam, which Oxfam is against, um, it's basically for boycotting any companies that produce their product inside produce the product their products inside uh, illegal settlements, right? Because illegal settlements are against international law, and Oxfam is a human rights organization, so that makes sense. So, um, so people, the BDS movement leaders in the BDS movement got really upset, and they were like, Oxfam, like you need to talk to Scarlett Johansson. You need to, you know, if she's going to stick with SodaStream, you need to dump her. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, you know, shouldn't be, you know, acting as a as a mouthpiece for a, a company that is, you know basically exploiting Palestinian labor. Uh, and so eventually what happened was Scarlett Johansson came out and said, uh, no, I, this isn't a bad company. Like the, 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 the factory in the Israeli settlement, it's a good thing because it promotes economic cooperation. And I'm all for that. Like she's for basically normalization with an occupying power, which is really bad. <laughs> um, but so she she came out and said that, and so then like after there was enough outrage, Oxfam, I, I you know I think what happened is Oxfam probably gave her an ultimatum and said like, look, if you want to be our global you know, our global ambassador, you can't, you know, you have to basically pick. And I and she picked SodaStream, so she's no longer a global ambassador for Oxfam International. So there you have it, Scarlett Johansson, uh, global ambassador for SodaStream and illegal Israeli settlements, dumps human rights organization. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's basically what's happened um and it's i mean there's been a lot of attention on it you know in the past week i'm sure you've seen it in the news which is a good thing i mean the news reporting the mainstream news reporting on it has been somewhat frustrating because a lot of it has uh has basically like like has basically tried to make it seem like israeli settlements uh for example max fisher at the washington post if you're not familiar with him he constantly writes about topics he doesn't actually know about uh, that are foreign policy related, and he always gets them wrong and fails to quote people who are actually like living in the places that he, he writes about. But he wrote about this situation, and he basically said that uh, illegal that the illegal Israeli settlement that it's in. He was like, oh, whatever. He was like, they're the like legally and ethically, it's more complicated uh, than people make it out to seem. And it's like, no, it's it's not complicated. And that's kind of how the media has portrayed Israeli settlements because of this soda stream issue, as if, as if they're, like, complicated and controversial, when, in fact, no, like, they, they are against international law. Uh, they are crimes against humanity. I mean, a, a illegal settlement where you uproot and displace and dispossess people from their land is, an, is a crime against humanity. It is against international law. It is, you know, international law is very explicit about uh, an occupying power, moving people, moving their own citizens into occupied land and displacing uh 
and displacing the you know displacing the people who are being who have been occupied. So there's absolutely nothing complicated about it. So that's been like the frustrating aspect of all this. But overall, I think it's been like a good educational experience for maybe people who weren't familiar uh, with you know with Israeli settlements or uh, people who didn't know SodaStream. Uh, had a factory that was operating out of an Israeli settlement. So, you know, there's like positives and negatives. But I think overall, you know, I think it definitely shows that the BDS movement is making, um, it's really is growing and is having an impact, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. It, it seems like uh, quite a, uh, I don't know, victory, at least in the sense that you get people discussing what this boycott, divestment, sanctions movement is all about. And, uh, you know, I just take controversial and complicated to mean that these people are having difficulty rationalizing it. Uh, and maybe there are others who are challenging them when they uh, try to accept or ignore illegal settlements in uh, the occupied territories. Uh, and the one thing I wanted to mention before we happen to move on here was just since you and I have talked about the American Studies Association, I did want to mention uh, the New York Assembly being sent uh, this letter by the Center for Constitutional Rights and the National Lawyers Guild, uh, the New York City chapter, and how they were talking about opposing the uh, legislation that would deny state funding to colleges and universities that fund membership and activities in organizations supporting boycotts of a list of countries, including Israel. <laughs> so uh, this is very problematic, and I think in a future podcast we'll probably go into it in more detail, but I mean, any uh bit of comment here. I mean, this yeah. is obviously becoming a, a bigger issue in academic institutions. No. So I, the, okay. So one of the, it is an issue because I think that what you're seeing here is that the pro-Israel uh, community uh, is losing. It's losing the battle uh, against like, it's, it's losing the battle for for, you know, legitimization, I guess, uh, because Israel is just like involved in so many atrocious human rights violations. And so what they're what's happening is BDS is such a threat to them that they're being forced to turn to state power to to suppress and silence dissent and, and, and activism against Israel and for, you know, for equality. Uh, and so I think that's what you're seeing here, you know, in the case of whether we're talking about BDS, uh, the BDS movement and like the academic association, the studies association boycott, uh, and you're seeing all these university presidents come out and like make these statements saying that that uh, they're against boycott of Israel, uh, and like they, you know, they're against the ASA now because because of this. I mean, you're seeing the university presidents aren't exactly a part of the grassroots; <laughs> they kind of function as like CEOs, right? Uh, so they're a part of the power structure, and so that's what you're seeing constantly, and that's what you're seeing in New York right now is you're seeing the pro-Israel lobby turning to state power to try and uh, to try and quash this. Uh, this grassroots movement for equality. And I think, you know, they're going to increasingly continue to do that, but I don't think it's going to work. I mean, this is like clear first amendment violations here. Uh, you, you can't say like, it's like you, they can pass this, but, and it, it's really disturbing that, that it's probably, cause I mean, they passed it in, um, they passed it right in the legislature. Now it's in the Senate and now it's going to go to Andrew Cuomo, I think. 
Uh, and so I, I have a hard time seeing him not, you know, I have a hard time seeing him not signing on to this. But, you know, it, it's it's unconstitutional is what it comes down to. And I think that's what the, obviously, the Center for Constitutional Rights is saying as well. So I don't think it'll, I don't think it will hold up in any court of law. But, um, but yeah, I think that's what the trend is here. Is how I see it. And one thing I did want to mention, one thing about this, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but um, maybe you see it in front of you. I'm trying, I'm like scanning through this. Uh, it, it was something about how um, how the legislation says you can't boycott any countries unless the U.S. lists them as like sponsors of terrorism. Did you see, do you know what part I'm talking about? I was not aware of that. Hang on. That- you know, you, you can't do that, I mean, um, because that would seem to limit the I fa- I found assembly it. of people, you know, under the First Amendment. Okay, so it says, hang on a second, oh, let me find it. It's like, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, hmm. <laughs> okay, so, oh, by the way, it passed 56 to 4, so there you go, New York. <laughs> you have uh, 56 very cowardly senators. Um, uh, crazy, crazy, crazy. You can just find it, and then why don't we just cut this part out since... Okay, good idea, because I'm like, I really want to just read you this one part. The legislation also has language extends. Oh, here it is. Okay, so I'm reading from... Um, from Mondo Weiss, uh, from Alex Kane's reporting on this uh, a couple days ago. And it says that the bill's principal impact, oh wait, wrong part, hang on. Oh, it says that institutions violating the legislation would be cut off from state aid during the academic year the violation occurred. The legislation also has language that exempts certain kinds of boycotts. Boycotts related to labor disputes, countries that are state sponsors of terrorism, and boycotts that target unlawful discriminatory practices. <laughs> exactly what the ASA and BDS movement are all about. But yeah, I just found that interesting. It's like it exempts you, like, so countries that are state sponsors of terrorism, meaning so I assume that means like, oh, but if you want to boycott Iran, right, feel free because <laughs> the U.S. Yeah, considers yeah, Iran. We needed Iran. BDS right. to convince people that Iran needs to be opposed. But yeah, so anyways, there's a lot of problematic aspects to that, but I'm glad you brought that up. So to move on, we're going to talk about these incredible lawsuits that are being brought by people who were terribly violated uh, through strip searches. Uh, just some highlights here. In the past days, uh, January 29th, we had a lawsuit filed in Chicago uh, alleging that police uh, strip-searched three people in public and accused them of, uh, falsely accused them of carrying heroin during a traffic stop last year. Um, And the lawsuit says that the officers, quote, exceeded all bounds of human decency. What essentially happened is that on May 23rd, 2013, Police ordered them out of their vehicle, handcuffed uh, two of these individuals, uh, Tevin Ford and uh, Robert Douglas. Uh, Douglas is now dead. And it doesn't say not, why, though, yeah. It's not related to the strip search, but uh, their estate is now involved in filing the suit. So his family has filed on behalf of him. And so the officers went and uh, opened uh, both of the men's waistbands and searched down their pants. 
Um, and then they allegedly took Douglas to a nearby house, handcuffed his wrists to the bars on a home window, and then pulled his pants down and started to search his buttocks. So uh, this was very invasive. And then they... Uh, uh, this went, was in public, by the way. This point, is in yeah. public, yeah. They're, having, they're doing this out in open view. Thanks, yeah, thanks for making that point. It's incredibly... Uh, it's amazing that this is happening out in public. And then a female officer uh, took um, Miss uh, Caprice oh. Haley, Hallie, mm -hmm. and uh, removed her pants uh, and performed a body cavity search on her. But she had a tampon <laughs> in so her yeah. and forced this woman to remove it and then proceeded to do the search and so all of these uh, people went through incredible emotional distress. Uh, they're seeking damages for this unlawful search. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk about the New Mexico story? You have that in front of you? Yeah, I do. So, um, but just to point out, they're actually, the, with the, the story you were just talking about, the, uh, the police actually stopped. They were doing, to, they, were, they were searching inside the two men's, basically like, you know, had them bent over looking inside their assholes in public. And then two, and the neighbors saw. And so they took all three of them behind an alley in a church or something, behind a church alley is what happened. Uh, and then that's where the girl was violated. And also, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you just mentioned this or not, but that when the girl was being searched, they, ha they had her remove her tampon. And right, she, yeah. but uh, they, this happened in front of a group of male officers. And according to the article on it, they, the, a group of male officers watched and made jokes and comments about Miss Haley's body uh, while she was being searched. So, I mean, this is like such a violation of, I mean, this is like sexual assault, essentially. Like, it's, it's like a form of rape by police, in my opinion. It's disgusting. Um, but yeah, so. Th th but apparently, these are happening more and more because we've got these cases in New Mexico, and, and you could talk about one. Well, yeah. So in New Mexico, there's like these this series of cases. A while back, it was a uh, there was an article about this. Now there's another one, where people on the border are getting stopped, like for traffic stops, and then the police are forcing them to. There's basically subjecting them to unlawful cavity searches. Uh, and in one case, they actually made a man go to the hospital and had a and they they forced him to to. Um, to do a cavity search, like, by the doctor, which I thought was just insane. And that, it wasn't the first time it happened. But so there's a woman who uh, who was stopped at a traffic stop, and um, and she was eventually detained, like, days later uh, when she went to go try and get her car back. And police, like, she was – New Mexico police put her in a room and uh, basically told – like, they told her to strip naked um, and – in front of male officers again, she was subjected to a she was subjected to a vaginal and anal search, uh, and then she was later charged with possession of marijuana, but those charges were dropped because the police could not produce any evidence, uh, which right there is a big red flag. Um, but yeah, it's and, and this isn't the first time it happened. Uh, the, you know, this is um, it's it goes on to say that like in Texas, this has also happened in Texas. There's a pending. Uh, lawsuit against federal agents over a similar search of a woman crossing from Mexico to, through El Paso. Uh, 
Um, and basically lawyers involved in this are saying that police, they believe police officers or law enforcement agencies are under pressure to spend federal drug money, drug fighting money. Um, and so they're overstepping their authority, which I think is kind of a bizarre explanation. <laughs> Maybe they are, but that's, I mean, that still doesn't explain why they're getting rapey about it. Um, but so basically, yeah, this is, I mean, th this is happening a, a lot and it should concern everybody. I mean, this is like, I don't even know if there's a way to describe this. This is like beyond police state. Um, when you've got people being detained for long periods of time and subjected to basically like anal and vaginal probes. And I think with, uh, the, so there was one, the guy, he got a $1.6 million settlement uh, and that individual in New Mexico I believe they took him to a hospital, and when he was there, the doctors wouldn't perform what they were being asked to do, so they drove him to another hospital. Oh, did in they? Order, in, or, in order to actually do the violating search on him. And it, it's just incredible. And one of the things that, that comes to mind that you know I, I think about, because with the, with the wide war on, on terrorism that you have, uh, with this country. I know that at Guantanamo Bay, the prisoners are regularly subjected to these searches when they go to meet with their lawyers, and then uh, if they want to meet with them, they have to agree to a search. And then when they come back from their lawyer, I think they have to agree to a search or I don't know if they do it all, well, all the time. I don't know. Do they, do they do actual searches? or and not, that it, not that it's any easier, but I know like in prisons, and this is not pleasant either is like they basically force people to strip naked after they've had visits I did not not every I don't know if they do this at every prison but it, it is done where uh, you, they, they force you to strip naked and you have to like bend over and cough to make sure you're not hiding anything and you know in your cavities which is just outrageous but anyways but that's that's what I'm talking about and for 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 these men you know particularly many of them being uh, Muslims are very uh offended and decide that they're not going to meet with their lawyers. But the reason I would just raise this is it just, it's, it seems just like systemic of this uh, suspicion and, uh, you know, the abuse of authority and just thinking that you can get away with it and do it and nobody's going to be able to stop you. Uh, obviously at the border uh, uh, with New Mexico, you could see mostly immigrants being targeted for these cavity searches. Right. Like, who knows which ones we don't know about? Because, I mean, these are these are lawsuits. So these are people who've gotten representation to fight back. And not everybody has that luxury. Um, and real quick, I just want to point out with the Chicago situation, as disgusting as that was, it didn't surprise me. Because, uh, and you'll remember this, Kevin, because I, I, I know you you'd read it. I, I, um, I reported on a young man in Chicago, Angel Perez, who was basically tortured and raped with a gun by a Chicago police by Chicago police officers. Uh, they stuck like they they sodomized him with a gun until he agreed to be a drug informant. And these police officers are still on the street. He's been involved in like a, a year and a half long lawsuit, like trying to get some sort of justice for this. But like he really just wants these officers off the street, and that's probably not going to happen. I think that also goes to the fact that like we have. Basically, police officers who can operate largely with impunity in this country, uh, especially in bigger cities like Chicago. Uh, and it's, that's, I mean, that's, it's really disturbing. Yes. And the, these people in the Chicago Police Department are on video. Uh, we have them on camera. Oh, yeah. But, but again, 
we talked about the Kelly Thomas case, and you just don't know anymore if that's enough to actually convict because uh, we've had in the past years such an expansion of police powers to uh, basically retroactively justify just about anything they do. And uh, if you have any final comments that you could add them, but I mean, that's a good lead into talking about the NATO three case. Cause a lot of that, as I've sit there and watch is a lot of retroactive justification for police activity. No. Yeah. I think I'm, I mean, I think we just said everything we need to say about that. I think you should go ahead and tell us about the outrageous, crazy NATO case that you've been covering the past couple of weeks. Yeah, so what I did is I went ahead and uh, Fire Dog Lake, we decided we wanted to purchase a transcript of the best part of the trial so far. So we've talked about this. And I'll just give a quick refresher for people who are maybe being introduced to this for the first time. Uh, the NATO case are these three men. Their names are Brian Jacob Church, Brent Betterly, and Jared Chase. They're all in their 20s. They organized with the Occupy movement. They were at Occupy Miami and Occupy Fort Lauderdale. They drove up to Chicago for a NATO meeting that was happening in May of 2012. The dates were 19th and 20th. There was a large demonstration planned for May 18th that they had hoped to go to, and they were going to protest. Now, these individuals were into uh, what people know as the black bloc uh, protesting, dressing up with black bandanas, covering themselves in all black to conceal their identities from police. Uh, they were very boisterous people. They were willing to take on and confront the police. And when they got to Chicago, they uh, lived in a residence apartment in the area of Chicago. It's called Bridgeport. It's on the south side. It wasn't too far from Occupy Chicago's headquarters. They socialized with people who were in Occupy Chicago. And on May Day, May 1st, they were uh, two people came up to them and introduced themselves. And uh, this was at an after party at a, at a location in Chicago. And they introduced themselves as uh, Mo and Nadia. Their real names are Officer Nadia Chico and Officer Mehmet Egan or the Turk, which he apparently tried to give himself a nickname of the Turk, but that never stuck <laughs> in the community. It's just kind of weird. I don't know why, because it sounds really cool. <laughs> so, and so this guy, Egan, who was known as Mo, had a big beard, and they had a cover story that they were first cousins. Nadia and, uh, and Mo were first cousins, so... Uh, and anybody who was going to come and be a part of their little undercover police operation was going to be introduced as a cousin, which is a warning. So if you're ever in an act <laughs> and someone says this is my cousin, you will now know why it's reasonable to be suspicious. Good to know. Uh, and if they say first cousin, um, I don't know why you couldn't have said this is my sister or, you know, just had to be first cousin, so it would be believable. Uh, and so they were there, and then they just started to talk to these people and it seems get them to talk about their attacks, their plans, whatever they were planning to do, except they really had no plans. And what the prosecutors have accused them of doing is planning to uh, do really wild things like uh, a four police station attack, 
to go after Obama's reelection campaign headquarters. Uh, one guy, they said a church was going to shoot a bow and arrow at Rahm Emanuel. You know? What? <laughs> Yeah. That was one of the allegations? Yeah, yes. Um, because <laughs> these men, you know, they're, they're, there are layers upon layers of absurdity to this trial that make this endlessly fascinating. <laughs> Church had a guitar case of weapons that he drove up with in his car, and they're all legally possessed. But because they have these weapons, there are endless things that the prosecutors can concoct about what they were going to be doing because oh, they had uh, they, he had two knives he had a sword he had uh, a throwing star oh my god a bow and arrow and so they keep claiming that these things would have been used in some way and then on may 16th the day that they were uh, arrested in a police raid they are on tape because uh, um, from May 4th onward to May 16th, the two undercovers were wearing wired devices, and they were uh, listening, and, and those conversations were, you know, they're now in the police uh, databases, and they're part of the trial, and they were talking to these men about making Molotovs, and they even, uh, at one point, they, the men were getting out uh, beer bottles, and they were uh, making the Molotovs, and uh, the the guy, one of the undercover cops, said he had $2 and we'll go down to the BP gas station and we'll get some gasoline to make Molotovs. And then they came back and they made four bottles, which were then hid in a bathroom. Which is, this is the way that the police department says they were taking control of the explosives. They were <laughs> hidden in the bathroom for the people, the, for the police department to find when they raided the apartment around midnight uh, that evening. And then one of the funniest what? parts about this case, one of the funniest parts about this case is that they they make these Molotov, these so-called Molotov cocktails um, with uh, I, an un, I, unknown amount of gasoline. They they dump the gasoline down the toilet. So <laughs> I have no, we have no idea how much gasoline were in these bottles and and whether it was just like you know like. Uh, you know, was it just a little bit or how much? Was it like, yeah, were we talking like a big, huge bomb of them all? Like, it's like, they the whole like yeah. what are we talking about here? And they, they dumped it down the toilet. Yet when they inventoried the evidence, they marked it with a green biohazard sticker. <laughs> my favorite because we're putting biohazardous chemicals into the sewage system. Right. But like, yeah, let's mark it so no one gets sick from it, from like touching it now. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but when they were making these cocktail, finally when they've got them, they contact their su surveillance team and they say, what do you want us to do now? Which is my favorite part of the story because they had not figured out what they would do after they got these people to make the Molotov cocktails, they say, oh, well, uh, buy us some time. We've got to go get a, a search warrant so we can do a raid. And so now they, they're all freaked out. The two undercovers have to figure out what they're going to do for the next two to three hours to buy some time, which just seems so amateurish for the operation. And But what I want to get into uh, now, uh, I don't know, it, well, hold on, you mentioned, I wanted to, well, I do, the, okay, so, it sounds to me like they took their two worst police officers, or, or they took their two worst people, and they were like, go do this really, really, like, stupid thing that's actually not going to turn into anything, like, and then, 
I don't know. It just sounds like, because you mentioned amateur, it sounds really amateur. It sounds like they didn't actually take it seriously until maybe like later on when they were like, oh, well, maybe we should prosecute because I don't even know why, but I don't know if you, you know, have anything to say on that, but it just seems to me like they were just like half-assing it. So Nadia had never been an undercover officer and you've got these months before this national special security event. We thought we were going to have the G8 summit and the NATO meeting at the same time. Right. The White House freaked. They thought Rob Emanuel and the Chicago Police Department, they're not going to be able to handle the G8 and NATO. We're going to move the G8 to Camp David just to be on the safe side. We don't want anything to happen. And having it at Camp David discouraged the kind of protest you would have seen if it, you know, in, in Toronto they had the G20 and there were a lot of, well, also Camp David. Camp David's like a freaking fortress too. So, like, it's you can't yeah. you can't protest. So yeah, deliberately discouraging the protest. Right, right. Uh, and so, uh, what happens here then is they deploy these officers and they're doing this wide police surveillance operation. I mentioned some of it to you, uh, but, but now let me let me get in. So let's okay. let's meet Nadia Chico because she's a character, <laughs> and I have this transcript. I'm just going to read to you. Like, first, this is a flavor for proceedings. So uh, the defense attorney, his name is Michael Deutsch, and he first he began when he first did his cross-examination. This was back on uh, January 23rd, so it's more than a week ago. And he comes up to her, and the first questions were just to go through and establish that nothing criminal had been discussed. No criminal act had been talked about, or, I mean, sorry, not talked about, but committed. No criminal act had been committed up to... May 16th. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was established. And then um, he goes on to ask her, uh, when you were with them and you had your tape recorder on, did you ever see him or hear him break a window? Uh, oh, by the way, Deutsch represents church. So all of his questions are about Brian Jacob Church okay. and asking him, uh, asking her about whether he's guilty of anything. Got it. And so... Uh, she says, no, sir. He just talked about committing a criminal act, sir. And then Deutsch said, could you answer my question? I asked you if he ever broke a window. That's yes or no. Don't give other. And, uh, and then the prosecutor objected and the court sustained. And he said, okay, you tell our judge. And the court said, answer the question asked. This is my favorite part of the proceeding because then for the next uh, here you'll hear, they just keep insisting that she answer these these. Answer the damn yes or no questions, basically. He said, did he ever shoot an arrow at the mayor's house? He apparently talked about how he wanted to shoot an arrow at Rahm Emanuel's house. Right. And she said, I didn't see him, sir. Uh, did you ever hear that he ever shot an arrow at the mayor's house? No, sir. He just told me about the attack, sir. I'm asking you again. Judge, will you instruct her to answer the question, please? And then the judge said, if it is a yes or no question, please give a yes or no answer. And so she said, yes, sir. And then Deutsch said, did you ever hear about him shooting an arrow at the mayor's house? Well, I heard him say it. I didn't see him do the act, sir. Did you ever hear about him doing the act? That's my question. No, because she put in, I heard him say... So if you answer the question, that's a yes or no, with a yes or no, we won't be going through this constantly. That's what the judge said. <laughs> Just answer it, yes or no, and then he won't keep interrupting you. 
And then she said, okay, I'm sorry, Your Honor. She's very good at playing victim. She sat up there, and she looked like she was the one who was being wrong. Like this, like this mean, mean, you know, lawyer is, uh, is bullying me. Right. And so then he said, did you ever see him shoot an arrow at the mayor's house? Yes or no? No, sir. Did you ever hear about that he shot an arrow at the mayor's house? That he actually did it? Yes, that he actually did it. She said, no, sir. He just told him he was going to do it. And then he said, judge, I move to strike the last part of the answer. The judge said, the last part of the answer will be stricken and disregarded. What? And then Deutsch said, and I ask you to please instruct the witness to answer my question. <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm watching, is this, this defense lawyer doing this. And um, How did you keep a straight face through this? Uh, but, I mean, this is just incredible. And then, uh, you know, I want to get to a couple more sections before we wrap up here because this this stuff is just incredible to me. So then later she uh, – this is what we mean, I mean when I'm talking about encouraging. So she uh, was with uh, defendant uh, J- Jared Chase, and she said uh, – here you go. Uh, You're saying, should we make some? You guys got bottles. And then you say, should we make some? And then you say, let's do it. Come on. Is that true? So it's Deutsch asking her if she told the guys, let's do it. Come on. Let's make the Molotov cocktails. She said, defendant Chase says, let's do it first, sir. And then Deutsch said, and then you say, let's do it. Come on, right? Sir, this is Dottie answering, I am a UC, which is undercover. I was going with the flow of the conversation. Deutsch then asked, when you said, let's do it, come on, you weren't encouraging them to commit a crime? And she says, no, sir. Deutsch then asked, what does let's do it, come on, mean to you? And Nadia answered, sir, I am going with the flow of the conversation at this point. I want to know and be aware if they are actually going to do it, sir. That's my job. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? She's like... Basically telling them, please do it. Please. <laughs> that is not the flow of the conversation. And, and, and then, you know, one more because I, I find these incredibly amusing. I mean, this is just in, so, so we'll wrap on her theory about why uh, it's okay to record the license plates of people who you have no suspicion for why or recording their license plates. Uh, She says, um, as part of our duty, sir, we went out. If there was license plates to record, we would record them. We would run them. They were clear. As you can see over here, we would run them, and that was it, sir. And Deutsch asked, clear of what? And she said, just clear, no warrants, no nothing. And Deutsch said, why would you run the license plates of people who are going to be at a public music event? And she said, sir, we are police officers. We run people's plates. That's how we sometimes find warrants and stuff, sir. Oh, my God. I'm, like, face-palming for her. Like... Uh, and uh, it just doesn't even get through to her. And, uh, and, yeah, and so this is the sort of thing that when we're talking about the final point I'll put on this, we've gone quite a while with this, but I think it's well worth it, uh, is the, the, the culture of the 
police to collect it all. They're doing, they had multiple officers. It wasn't, Nadia was, before they targeted these three, she was out going to punk rock shows. She was going to meetings, like Occupy meetings. She was going to uh, cafes and were eavesdropping on conversations. Uh, there's a great comment on Reddit by this guy who says he was one of he was a skinhead that she came up to and talked to at a punk rock show. He calls himself that. No, I'm not just wow. I'm not just, <laughs> I'm not just using that. That's actually what he called himself. Well, we wouldn't we wouldn't want to offend a skinhead. So yeah, right. So he <laughs> says I was there, and and she comes up and asked me where I could find some weed uh, or, or where she could find some weed, and uh, he remembered her. And at, with this trial, he wrote this really great comment about the police state. And how basically what he does and what people do to organize is something that the police will never understand. They just will never get it. Uh, and I think that's the point to, to wrap up and then get your reaction is just what I see with here is, is they were collecting all of this information. They have all this evidence of people who talk, are willing to talk about uh, what they would like to do to the police and they're in their dreams, they would like to, I don't know, see a police on fire. <laughs> yeah. But they never plan or plan to do anything. And I have yet to see the prosecutors present any evidence that they ever had the brain capabilities of planning an attack. I mean, these are men who were on, uh, they were drunk, uh, totally wasted on alcohol. They were maybe high. Um, they were, uh, one of them, uh, Church, uh, I think was ha going through substance abuse and he was, uh, doing over, overdosing on like cough medicine or something. <laughs> and it's like, these people weren't ever going to do anything. You're, you are, you are preying on them and they're not going to do anything, but then you get them on screen, you get their mug shots on the news, uh, screens, uh, all of us get to see them on the news before this meeting and we can be proud of the security state for giving us the terrorists that were going to come to the city of Chicago and wreak havoc as, as um, militant anarchist protesters uh, at the NATO meeting. And well, God, God forbid a cop have to run because the anarchists are like, are like running in the street <laughs> and making it difficult for cops to keep up with a march. So let's, let's like, yeah, let's, let's convict them of terrorism so that we don't have to, <laughs> we have to exert ourselves. Jesus Christ. Right. So that's, that's that. And I'm, I'm going to continue to cover. We don't have uh, a, a verdict yet. We, the defense hasn't even presented its case, but uh, that's uh, what's going on now. And uh, we've gone quite a long time. Yeah. Here, so. Let's wrap, wrap up. up. And uh, any any final thoughts here? Anything you want to announce that you're doing, and you might have people might be interested? Well, I did just write a piece for that went up today for Truth Out on um, on gentrification in DC's poorest neighborhoods. It's like the first signs of gentrification are beginning to take hold. So yeah, check out Truth Out. Um, my article's over there. It's called. It's called DC's Poorest Residents Fight Against Gentrification or Against Displacement by Gentrification. It's a really important article. I encourage you to go check it out. All right. And our guest for this show, uh, Kate Crockford, I wanted to drop. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the, her her uh, blog is you can find her regular postings at 
privacysos.org backslash blog. Uh, and I really encourage you to see that uh, and go there on a daily basis. And also on Twitter, you can find her at OneCade, uh, O-N-E-K-A-D-E. Uh, definitely follow and read her regular postings. Uh, now, uh, I have this transcript. I've got 90 pages of great, incredible, uh, dazzling, amusing material from <laughs> this afternoon. Eventually, I'm going to get it up, and I hope that you all will take a moment to enjoy it as much as I have, uh, to revel in the spirit of the security state, which is both uh, stupid at times and then also just wildly uh, insane and uh, just incredibly authoritarian in their uh, – it's just – I don't know. I get speechless reading some of parts of that. So – Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast, and I hope to have you again next week. Thank you, Rania, for being part of the show as well. Thanks, Kevin. We'll be back soon.